Look, there is an immense amount of suffering everywhere, a sea of it, everywhere you look. I mean, you can look in the wealthy, they're suffering. You look at the poor, they're suffering. You look, you know, you can see a suffering everywhere. What are you going to do? If you sit around trying to decide rationally which suffering to deal with, you'll drive yourself and everybody else absolutely up the wall because you'll decide, is this the most important suffering? The art is to empty, keep quieting and emptying until you're quiet enough to intuitively feel the gestalt of it all, which includes your skills, your existential situation, your opportunities, and understanding the web of all life, you begin to see that any act of compassion done anywhere is part of the web of compassion of the universe. Welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now podcast episode. This is episode 227, Awareness Without Identification. I'm Jackie Dabrinska, your host, and you, all of you are the Ramdas community, a group of people with hearts and minds and compasses pointed towards self-awareness, the big S self-awareness and the small S self-awareness. Thank you for tuning in. We have another incredible episode to share today. It's a question and response session from 1993. And in it, Ram Dass talks about psychedelics as a method and how not to get caught in that or any other method. He talks about the right to die and how it is held in our culture. He talks about moving skillfully between planes of emptiness and form, the importance of knowing our no and still keeping an open heart how any act of compassion is important for the whole web of life, and so much more. He also talks about getting still in order to hear our intuition, what is ours to do. And I think most of us have some experience of how it can be difficult to get still, especially as our culture and lives seem to speed up with technology and the to-do lists and just this underlying stress about the state of things that seem beyond our control. And when our nervous systems get jacked, it can really be hard to get calm, to be able to listen, to get still, to know what is ours to do and the power we have to help create whatever comes next. And luckily, we have really ancient technologies. A lot of the things Ramdas did, especially in his early years, and part of what they do is they just help regulate our nervous system and our monkey minds, right? So we have things like breath and pranayama, toning and chanting, even the stabilizing movements of yoga and things like herbal medicine, diet and lifestyle. But we also have really powerful modern technologies. And one is the Apollo wearable it's this device that I just started using, and it really captures this brilliance of touch therapy, and it helps to rebalance the nervous system and support circadian rhythms. It's just this little device that you wear on your wrist or your ankle, and it sends soothing, gentle waves of vibration through your whole system. And just that act, it strengthens your nervous system, and it can help us stay regulated so we can access those deeper states of meditation and beyond. 
So the Apollo folks are giving you, this audience, a special discount to try it out. You can get 40 off your purchase today by using the code BEHERENOW. So go to apollonero.com and I'll spell that for you. It's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And the discount code is BEHERENOW. So hopefully it'll help you tap into a calmer you and find so much more. We hope you enjoy this episode and the wisdom that comes through. As always, whatever good does come from it, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. We thank the many, many people who made this podcast possible, from our sound guys to our sponsors, to you for tuning in, to those who donate. So if you don't already, please consider making a donation at ramdas.org slash donate. So... Here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Questions and answers. We know that you know and I know, so we're just talking to ourselves, but we do it anyway. So if you have questions, just raise a hand and I'll recognize you. Yes, and I'll repeat the questions. She says that um, talking about spiritual work and... Um, ingesting uh, chemicals like pot and mushrooms. She says, can't you get stuck in the astral levels and shouldn't you keep away from it as a path? Um, Let me say that every single path is a trap. That's the first thing you've got to know. I've met meditators who are the driest, crustiest meditators. They're not free. They're just good meditators, okay? And I've met church-going people who are really church-going people, and they're not free either, and they've lost the spirit into being good church-going people. So we've got to recognize that methods are traps. And the only thing you hope is that you go through the trap, because for the method to work, you've got to be trapped by it, and then you hope it self-ejects at the end. That's the only hope you can have, because you can't protect your virginity by not going to the methods because you need them and you got to throw yourself into them so it's a real problem. So now coming specifically to the chemicals, um, certainly people can get stuck um, with, uh, with proper guidance and in the right settings. Um, things like mushrooms and uh, psychedelic tryptamines can be useful in breaking you out of sets that are very strongly held in your mind. But they, and they show you a possibility. There are a lot of other things that show you the same possibility, but that is one of the methods. It's just another method. The way in which psychedelics are used in the culture at the moment, for the most part, is neither sacramental nor is it under the conditions that would optimize the chance for you to have an experience where you could move in and out of planes. The only people that get stuck in other planes are the people for whom this plane is not fulfilling. Then they use it as an escapist technique. But if you're not using it as an escapist technique, then that wouldn't happen. So you, I never would tell a person to do it or not to do it. I would tell them to get educated and then trust their own intuitive heart. But I would say that in this society at this moment, because of the 
paranoia connected with drugs, this isn't the optimum setting for this kind of research at this moment, okay? Questions? Questions about Dr. Kevorkian? Well, I think that Dr. Kevorkian is bringing to our attention a situation that we have, um, we have treated um, primarily in a reactive way out of our fear that um, until technology forced the issue, which it's now doing, because it can keep people alive longer and longer, uh, um, we were able not to have to think about some of these issues. My feeling is that, uh, well, I work a lot with AIDS patients, for example, that are going through um, opportunistic illnesses and so on. And my statement to them when they talk to me about suicide is, um, a human birth is a, a precious learning experience, and it is... It's useful for you to use it as well as you can as part of your curriculum to spiritually awaken. That's what the game is about as far as I'm concerned. But you know, and only you know, when it gets to the point where you can't transmute the experience anymore and it's, you're just caught in it and you can't get out. And at that point, you have your own choice to make. I don't feel there's any moral injunction or there is any hell and damnation about uh, ending your own life. I would encourage a person to use life as richly as possible as long as they can because I think it is a very precious and beautiful opportunity. But I certainly don't think there's anything morally wrong with ending it. Now, uh, Dr. Kevorkian's role is what we are going to be faced with more and more in our society. And the, uh, the legislature that's, uh, I mean, his way of doing it and the tone with which he's doing it may be somewhat delicate because of his personality. But we are faced with some incredible ethical dilemmas because technology can keep people alive longer and longer. And their lives are no longer lives where they're transmuting anything. They're not transforming, they're not working and they don't want to be in it. And I feel humans have a right to choose their own course of life. I may not agree with what they do, but I think they have a right to do it. Questions? He's, he's bringing up that in the course of my conversation, I talked about a situation where you would stay open to the way things are, which would include the happiness and the sadness at another time, I talked about, before I look at the news, drawing back into the emptiness from which forms arise in order to be able to absorb them. And um, what was the third one? Oh, the mystery, the mystery. We don't know. I don't know. Don't know. Don't know. And he said, how do those integrate? The answer, it's, it's what I started to, sh what I was trying to show was the statement, there's nowhere to stand. Those are all perspectives. I go in and out of those and dozens more all the time. See, every time you say, well, that's the one I want, that starts to hold. 
Like if you hold out an emptiness, you lose form. If you stay in form, you lose emptiness. The business of seeing the happiness and sadness is still focusing on the plane with his form. And you exist on so many levels simultaneously. What, you're, what I'm really suggesting is you keep practicing moving in and out of all these different levels until at first it's sequential, ultimately it's simultaneous. At first you're going in and out of them and you're, oh, now I'm seeing it this way. Like I'll walk down the street and I will look at people and I will start to just shift my eyes enough so that I see through the veil of their personality and their social, physical identity. And I see these souls walking down the street who are busy living out an incarnation. And I go deeply into that until I'm a fellow soul just moving with these souls through this particular realm. And that's an exercise. And then at another time, I'm doing my beads all the time, and I'm doing a name of God, which is the name of the nameless, and I'm doing it in order to remind me of the emptiness behind form out of which form arises. And then at another time, see, I'm, I, what I'm saying is, I'm using, I'm an eclectic slob, first of all. You've got to know. And I use many, many methods. And it, people say, well, if you're this, how can you be that? Well, that's my art is figuring out how to use it all because every one of those things works to liberate you from sticking with your mind in one place. You're using one thing to loosen the hold of something else until finally you're not standing anywhere. All these methods, you can go in and out of them and in and out of them. Am I dealing with the question at all? Yeah. Okay. Uh, she's asking about... Um, uh, educating about birth control when you go into places like Somalia. Um, the issue of birth control, if you've, I mean, I've lived in India and I've been through a lot about this in Thailand and places like that. Uh, the issue of birth control is um, from the large scale way of looking at it, from like World Health Organization point of view, the the quickest way to control birth rate is to increase the economic status of the country. That's the basic way to do it. That as, what? We don't stay long enough? Yeah, well, the predicament is that um, we are at this moment not in a position to necessarily... Um, change the whole world. We've got uh, some very definite limits as to how we can play the game. And we've been working in, actually, we've been working in Africa for years on uh, issues of population control. We've been working in almost every developing country. But it boils down, the people that are doing that work year after year after year end up saying the best thing is to increase the economic level because in families where half of the kids die, they've got to have a lot of children just to make the game work because they don't have social security and they don't have old age things and they don't have, I mean, the web of stuff that re, around which population is an issue is an incredibly complex web. And so 
I agree that we we should at least support those issues. We should support... There are a lot of things we should do along with our aid. The problem is that when you give food to people, it's important that you... Like, like in SAVA, which is the organization I'm connected with, we don't accept any AID money, which is the... Uh, International Development Agency of the United States government because that gives things to people, but it gives things to people in order to manipulate their attitudes to be supportive of the United States. And we feel that is morally an unacceptable thing for us to be part of. And it's very tricky. You hear the issue? It's tricky to say, I want to feed you, but you got to promise not to have babies or whatever. I mean, I know you don't mean it that way, but I mean, to just bring that information in, I think is wonderful. The predicament is there's always, there's always a way in which developed countries think they know best. And it's one of the scourges of aid. Because what you've got to do is sit down with those Somalians and say, what do you want in life? What do you need? Why are you having babies? What can we do? Where do we start? Do you need a well? What do you need to get going? It's just not a simple thing of handing out leaflets or handing out condoms. That doesn't work because they don't use them or they will ignore them. I mean, we're dealing with, in Nigeria, we're dealing with places where probably the entire upper echelon of the country is going to die of AIDS. I mean, we're dealing with 50% of the population is going to die of AIDS in some of those countries. And uh, you don't even know where to go in to begin to do what you do. So I agree about education, about birth control, but my saying is when you're doing, um, when you're doing epidemiological studies, you've got to stand back and play the bigger game, and the bigger game seems to be an economic game. Okay. Yes. Are we being told the truth about AIDS? Uh, well, it all depends on which thing you're listening to. Um, as far as we know, I, I think you are being told the truth. I think the, the spin on the truth is very distorted by a kind of the moralistic thing of the culture. But I think that... Um, uh, I mean, it's it's um, it's still, as far as we know, it is spread only through semen and blood. Um, I mean, there have been theories that it was spread other ways, but we don't have any hard data on that. That it is um, um, the population demography of it is changing dramatically so that the number of women that are infected, because in, in Africa, there are as many women as men infected. And in this country, that's now changing too. It is still primarily located in the gay and needle-using populations. It starts from there, but then it goes through all the partners of the needle-users it goes through all the partners in both directions, but it goes out into 
women, and then that gets transmitted to babies so that there are an increasing number of babies being born that are HIV positive that live a year or two. Um, so um, the question of whether it's going to be rampant over this country uh, or over the world is... Um, uh, It's still a question of whether the educational level or the ability of people to change their sexual practices or their habits of needle using and things like that will be able to be modified sufficiently to calm it down. I would say that you are being told the truth and it's not much worse than you're hearing it to be, if that's the question you're asking. Yeah. Um, I, uh, one of our board members in SEVA is um, one of the heads of the Center for Disease Control, and he works specifically on the problem of AIDS. And so I'm thinking I'm saying what I know to be as true as I can hear it. That it's not like it's all being kept secret and it's going to explode. I don't think that's true. But I do think it's changing the sexual patterns in this culture. And... Um, and, uh, I mean, if you would look back and say, how's the hand of God working in all this? It's far out, you know, because it's certainly changing a lot of people's lives. I am blown away by the way in which the AIDS virus has brought forth in the culture, it has forced to the surface in the culture, both incredible amounts of compassion and incredible prejudices and fears and, and, and anger. And I think that, that our government's position is changing now with this new administration. I really feel that the previous government attitude was at some level of their consciousness that um, these were uh, expendable segments of the population. And I think that's changing now. I think that's changing. Yes. I think that you, I think that's an interesting example. She said, in case you didn't hear it, she said she, she, she usually can give to people, but two drunks came up to the truck and asked for money, and she heard, closed down. And um, I don't think you're going to have a rule book about this. I think you're going to have to trust intuitively how you respond and what you're dealing with is learning how to say no to somebody because in your total field, you don't feel that's an appropriate act in view of what you think is good for them and what you feel is uh, part of your own values, that you learn how to say no without closing your heart. That's the one. See, it's interesting because when you do, somebody comes up to you and wants something that you don't want to do, you go like that, you, you pull in, and you end, up not, you end up paying a double thing. I mean, you not only push them away, but you end up pushing yourself away as well. And I think I can look at somebody that comes up that's, that asks for something I'm not going to give them, and I say no, and I can say no because my guru, uh, this gentleman here, um, the thing he would say to me most frequently to all of us is jow, which means get lost, split. I mean, 
as opposed to these other spiritual traditions where they say, sign here and give me all your money. He uh, wasn't the least bit interested in any of us and just threw us out all the time. And at first I was very affronted. You know, I'd come all the way across the ocean bearing everything and I'd fall at his feet and he'd say, he'd look at me and he'd say, Jiao. I'd say, Jiao, I just got here. And then I began to hear that he was saying, go with love, I love you, the things everywhere, why stay here, this isn't to be at this moment, whatever. And I began to hear it differently after I worked with it for a while. So there's a way you could turn them down that would bring you closer to them and still say no because you felt it was inappropriate to give them money. The question is, which problem should we deal with? Is that the question? Look, there is an immense amount of suffering everywhere, a sea of it, everywhere you look. I mean, you can look in the wealthy, they're suffering. You look at the poor, they're suffering. You look, you know, you can see a suffering everywhere. What are you gonna do? If you sit around trying to decide rationally which suffering to deal with, you'll drive yourself and everybody else absolutely up the wall because you'll decide, is this the most important suffering? The, the art is, the art is to empty, empty, keep quieting and emptying until you're quiet enough to intuitively feel the gestalt of it all, which includes your skills, your existential situation, your opportunities, your, and understanding the web of all life, you begin to see that any act of compassion done anywhere is part of the web of compassion of the universe. So that a mother who is compassionate with her child is as significant a part of the game as somebody who is out on the railroad track protesting or somebody who's in a powerful position in government that once you stand back and see the way in which it's all interrelated. I remember um, there was a time in 68 or 9 where I was giving a series of lectures um, uptown in New York, and I was living downtown. So at around 5 o'clock during rush hour, I take a bus up 3rd Avenue. And um, a series of times I got the same bus driver. And 3rd Avenue at rush hour is heavy duty. And if you're driving a big bus, it's particularly hard. And this guy was, I don't know who he was, but when people got on the bus, he was there for them in some way or other. That I could just feel the softening happening in them when he got on the, just there, the smile or the look or the way he did whatever he did, the way he even drove the bus in traffic. And I realized it was like having Buddha in drag as a bus driver. And, that I, and I realized that probably everybody goes home and kicks their dog a little less. And everything goes, the web just goes out and out and out and out and out. And so I've, I've really begun to see that each person has to listen within their own lives as to what part they play. But I think that as you quiet down and you feel an identity, it's like, do you take care of the earth out of sacrifice and I ought to, or do you have you opened enough to feel that you're taking care of yourself? 
I mean, these are levels of consciousness till finally you feel that the web is what you are and this is the, just the obvious thing to do. It's obvious to do it. And you begin to trust your intuitive decision-making as to what to do rather than your rational analytic process of what to do. Okay. Let me give other people, yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about your point and phrase the dance of the divine. And I guess my question is, we we, we have a lot of techniques and in, in a lot of ways of that we're trying to learn how to communicate with uh, our God, goddess, all it is, the divine, the oneness, whatever you want to call it. I guess my question to you is, while we have to learn how to communicate with that, does God, goddess, all it is, the oneness, also need how to learn how to communicate that? Um, the relationship between uh, the one and the many, um, what I experience is that the the one is always in communication with all of it because it, it it's all within itself that the many cut itself off from the one with the mind. You cut yourself off from it. And so the you learn to open to it. It's not it like it. It's like it like it. I mean, it's like you're part of yourself learning about another part of yourself. The other part of yourself is just sitting and waiting for you to get around to acknowledging it. It's not like it's, it's got lessons to learn because where is it going to go? It includes you. How could it? It's like, you know, it's like your arm. It's like your fingers. It doesn't have to say, I got to learn about. It's interesting. Like you don't, it's very hard to describe how you make a fist, but it's not hard to do it. And because it's all part of you. It's a part of you. It's part of, and that's that level, but it's part of the whole thing. It's one thing that's all of it. So it is not, yeah. How do you allow this, the pain of it all to come in and still keep your heart open? It's learning how to keep your heart open in hell is really what the exercise is. And, um, and I, I'll tell you what happens is your heart breaks and it breaks and breaks and breaks and then you realize it's going to continuously be breaking and you start to find how to live with that process going on all the time. First of all, you don't collect the stuff. You pass it through like Chinese food. See, like when some horrible bit of data comes in, if you start to perseverate about it, oh, how horrible and all. If your mind grabs it, if there's attraction to it or aversion, see, the, there's where the suffering will, you bought the suffering, you got it now. But if you say, ah, so, ah, there's death, ah, there's birth, ah, there's confusion, ah, there's greed, Ah, and then out of all that, you do what you do to relieve the suffering, but you don't collect the stuff inside yourself. Your mind keeps going back into emptiness or into just pure awareness so that the stuff just comes in, it forms, you see it, you understand it, you feel it. There is a moment of the heartbreaking, and then you go on. The clinging is where the suffering is. The Buddha's Four Noble Truths were right on. First one, there is suffering. The second one, the cause of suffering is the clinging of mind. The third is, let go of the clinging, you end the suffering. 
And the fourth is his method for doing that. Now, those three first things are right on. And, but you can't go to somebody, but see, it's tricky because when you understand that for yourself, you can work on it. When you're suffering, you can say, what am I clinging to? What's the attraction or the aversion? Like if I'm getting old and I'm suffering, it's because I'm holding on to youth. It's like holding on to the summer against the winter. You know, it's like these are processes. What am I holding on to? Why don't I just ride with it? You know, there's the suffering. There's the root of the suffering is the clinging. But it's not easy to go up to somebody else that's suffering and say, you know, somebody comes up and says, hey, you got a quarter, I'm hungry. And you say, stop clinging. <laughs> See, I mean, <laughs> you've got to really honor that somebody's suffering is real for them. And unless they have the tools, they don't know how to work with their mind. And But I live in India a lot where I live in villages where people haven't got the food and they're not suffering. And what, I mean, most of the people I know in India live so far below what we call our poverty level, it's absurd. And when I look into their eyes and hearts, I feel beauty and joy and love. And I see somebody in the poverty level here, and I see incredible pain and suffering. And I think, isn't this bizarre that I go to there and I feel differently than I feel here? Now, that's not true across, and I'm not, this is not, uh, poverty is great and all that stuff. I mean, don't overhear what I'm saying, but I am saying that what we associate is with the causes of suffering are really not the causes, they're just the, pro the distal causes, the proximate causes are clinging of mind. The statement, uh, it takes a free person to free another, um, I think is true, but I don't think you can wait till you're free to work to free another. And that's the tricky one, that's the one we're all facing that you can't wait till you're liberated to help other human beings. And you've got to do what you can, but what it does, want the realization that your very act, like if I offer somebody food, to the extent that there is a place in me that is offering that in order for me to feel good about being somebody that offers food. Can you hear that? To that extent, I am in a funny way ripping off the situation. I'm milking it for my own ego enhancement, and at that level, I am doing something to that other person in the way I give the food. It's like I'm giving, it's like typhoid Mary. I'm giving the food, but along with it, I'm giving something else. I, and there's a way of giving in which you disempower people. And then there's another way of giving in which you don't. Now, you can't wait until you're totally selfless to give to people. So you understand that and you do what you can do. And you constantly, what it does is it drives you to constantly work on yourself, even in the process of living life. So you give as best you can, but you're constantly going back and working on yourself. And you work on yourself in order to be pure in the way in which you are with other people so you create less karma. Like if I walk into a room where somebody is dying, and, well, I'll give you an example. I have a, uh, I had a friend, he's died now. He actually died by his own choice. 
he was a fellow who, uh, at nine years old, got hit on the side of the head and lost all of his um, motor capacities. And uh, he is was in a wheelchair. Like, uh, he had to be fed. He had to choke down the food. He was now 30-some-odd. He had lived life, gone through college, done everything. He couldn't speak, but you could hold his hand over an alphabet board, and he could, uh, if, the, if the attendant was subtle enough, could feel some energy and move it from letter to letter. So it would be like that. And when I first met him, he was incredibly angry, as you can imagine. I mean, he was a, an adult person with sexual drives and all of this, but no chance to live a life, and he was feeling terribly full of anger and self-pity. When I first met him, he was so uh, disabled that the quality in me of empathy for that, that meaning I identified with it, and thought what it must be like to be that was so strong in me that I couldn't hear him. His symbolic value was so powerful, I couldn't get through the symbolism. He can hear that. And it took me almost six months of being with him, maybe once every couple of weeks or so, to the point where I could meet him as a fellow being who had an interesting incarnation. And the minute I could do that, he was able to get free of the identity with the physical body, which had been, was so powerful that nobody around him ever could get free of it. Do you understand that? It's like somebody that is extremely beautiful and they feel they're starving to death inside because everybody's responding to their physical beauty and not to, to their being. Or somebody that's incredibly wealthy and everybody's responding to their wealth, and nobody's ever responding to them, you know? It's interesting. And the minute I was able to do that, and this was an exercise on myself, I kept seeing him, but each time I would go through a whole routine inside myself, and then as the years went on, we just got so that I never, I got to the point where I never even noticed his body. And there was a great moment where I was speaking before about 500 uh, health professionals and uh, nearby in Santa Rosa, and he said, um, he said, could he introduce me? I said, why not, Kelly? Come on. So they wheel, here's all these people sitting out there, and they wheel this guy up, and he, you know, like this, and everybody freaks. I mean, they don't know what's going on, you know, and he's out there with his attendant, and he, <laughs> he, he spells out, um, R.D. says, we are not our bodies. Amen. <laughs> and it was great. I mean, it was just so beautiful. It was just such lightness. And I saw what spiritual growth that guy had gone through. I mean, what an incredible curriculum for an incarnation. Just what an incredible curriculum. Sir, how do you serve without attachment to, your, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the servant? The, the term attachment has to do with where the awareness is, what it's identified with. Like at this moment, your heart is beating, but you're not beating your heart. 
your awareness isn't connected with your heart beating. It's just going on. And as your awareness draws back and you find a way to start to remain in awareness without identification, then the phenomena of the universe continue to happen, but the awareness is no longer identified with the act. It's, it's what the Gita calls breaking the identification with being the actor. It doesn't mean that the actions aren't happening. Like oftentimes, you're walking along, but you're thinking of something and you don't even notice you're walking. There would be an example of your action, but you're not identifying with the actor. And ultimately, as your awareness gets quieter, what you do is determined by the gestalt of all things in which you find yourself, so that the act of that is just like walking. It's not, I think I'll give. It just comes out of the situation of your hunger and my having food. But it's not like I'm giving to you. That's a, a level of it, but that's not where my awareness is. Do you hear what I'm saying? It, it's, it's that statement, one does nothing and nothing is left undone. It's that place. It's these planes of consciousness we're talking about. Sir? What do I think of the concept of criticism? Well, um, the predicament with judgment is that the judging mind is a very divisive thing. It separates things from each other. And um, like I have friends around me who can tell me that I'm full of crap. And they can do it because we are so connected at a level of, of loving appreciation of one another that I can hear it from them. Somebody else who is identified with that judgment and doesn't have this other level will make me go like that. Do you hear what I'm, what I'm saying? So it's, it, that's really interesting that, uh, that um, my sense is what I've worked on because I came out of a very judging background and I was very judgmental all the time and self-critical, constantly doing that and doing it with groups of people and so on was to practice appreciation when I noticed myself judging. Because I began to see that other people change more when they are heard and appreciated than when they are judged. You can change the more superficial thing through judgment, but you can't change the deeper quality of their self-change. You can do it better through them feeling like they've been embraced rather than pushed against and judged. So I don't know whether I'm dealing with your question, but that's the closest I can come to that issue. Yeah. Uh, she says the desire to want to go home to God, to one, to go inward, to go. Um, as you begin to awaken and feel the taste of the at-homeness that comes from the oneness, there is a tendency to push against the form. 
push against your separateness and feel that incarnation is a drag and wanting to get out of it. If you push against it in order to grab for the, to go home, like I want to go home, do you hear that? I want to go home. What you get trapped in is just that, I want to go home. And it's an aversion. And the minute you have an aversion or an attraction to anything in the universe, it's got you. So you end up being, I mean, renunciation is a very interesting path. I'm going to push this away because I want this. But you, like I tried, sex was such a powerful desire in me, I figured I'll, go, I'll stop it and then I'll go to God. What I ended up was is a horny celibate. I mean, I was, I was like busy not having sex, which you can do all day long, you know. I mean, today I didn't have sex. I didn't smoke for two hours and three minutes, you know. It's that they're going to die of not smoking. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.